Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Please welcome today's guests, Kevin Eikenberry and Wayne Termel, authors of Long Distance Team, Designing Your Team for Everyone's Success. Guys, welcome. Hey, we're glad to be here. Lovely to have, lovely to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm glad to have you. So let's first start off uh, with uh, each of you telling us about your professional backgrounds. Go ahead, Wayne. Uh, my professional background is what the police often refer to as checkered. Uh-huh. Uh, I started in the entertainment business. That's what brought me from Canada to the U.S. And when I had to join the real world and the wife and child insisted on eating, I got into the training and development field, specifically around communication and presentation skills. And a couple of years in, I realized that the world was moving to online communication, WebEx, that kind of thing. And nobody was really helping people make that transition and use tools like this effectively. And so I then started my own consultancy did that for a number of years. Kevin and I had been colleagues for a while, and my business was getting lots of requests for leadership and remote team communication. He was getting a lot about virtual communication. And rather than invent two different wheels, we just brought our companies together. And that partnership is eight, nine years old, whatever it is. Um, And that's how we got here. Yeah, congratulations. Some of you may remember the the old commercial where the uh, the guy said, "I like the company so much, I I bought it. I like the product so much, I bought the company." And that's kind of what happened here. Wayne and I were had, had built some things together, and at some point, I said, "Hey, why don't you just come be a part of our team?" Which is what happened. And uh, so we've been we've been talking about this remote stuff a lot longer than most. Um, and so we, I suppose we'll get into that. But in terms of my background. Uh, I, I have a background in sales and marketing in, in a Fortune 15 company. And, and after a time of doing that, I got into training and development there. And 30 years ago, last fall, I left to start the company that's now the Kevin Eikenberry Group. Congratulations. And so why did you guys write this book? Well, it's the third of three, so I'll start there. So uh, pre-pandemic, we wrote The Long Distance Leader. And in fact, we're finishing the second edition as we speak. Um, And then during, at the start of the pandemic, we were finishing the manuscript for the long distance teammate and then then the long distance team, which we're talking about today. So we wrote this book specifically to complete the series uh, and to talk not just about the leader or the individual contributor teammates, but the collective that is the team and how does what does that look like um when we're not all in physical proximity every day 
It's really kind of um, a bigger picture look. You know, leader was specifically for managers and leaders, right? Teammate was for the individual contributor, but both those groups of people swim in waters that we call culture or whatever. And we were like, what is the water? And how do you make that the environment that you want to be in? And so it was creating a, a kind of final context for the behaviors in the other two books. And because, you know, this, this evolution through before and through and now after the pandemic, uh, we now know that the world of work will never be the same again. And so these ideas of what does team mean and what does culture even mean feels to many people like it's somehow different than when we were all in the same place. And so we talk a lot about how it's different, but recognizing that it's really still more the same than different. I think the timing was also really, really it's better to be lucky than good, I suppose. But the timing was really excellent in that right now we're talking about asking questions about your team and intentionally creating a new environment. And that's what we're going through with return to office and some of these other things. It's a moment in time. It's a, a fulcrum, I suppose, where people are making conscious decisions about where do we go from here? And that's what the book does is help you make those decisions intentionally and right for you that may not be right for everybody. Uh, why do, uh, what is it that, uh, that, how do you guys define corporate culture and what does that include? And you guys melded two different corporate cultures, right? Go ahead, Wayne. Uh, well, you know, when we talk about culture, there's kind of the HR touchy-feely way of looking at it, which is culture is how we do it here. Uh, you know, IBM is very different from Apple, which is very different from the Kevin Eikenberry group, which is it's how we do it here. But what we tried to do with the book is define the it. <laughs> what is it that we do that is different than everybody else? And is it what we want to be doing? Is this the workplace that we want is this, are we attracting the people that we want to work here and work with? And we did that uh, with a model and the model we call the three C model, which says, what are the, what are the things that make that culture? What are the pieces of that? It uh, are around communication, what, when, and how we communicate the tools that we use to do that, the expectations that we have around that, the, how we collaborate and what does collaboration look like and feel like in our organization or team, how and how that might be different from someplace else. And then what we call cohesion, which is sort of all of the other things like um, the levels of interaction and relationship and trust and all those things. And when you put those three things together, communication, collaboration, and cohesion, you have uh, a pretty good picture of the, what are the pieces of this culture of how we do things around here. Let How me give you an example. It... Oh. It's really easy to say, oh, we are a family here. But if your sales team is set up in such a way that they're all individual contributors and they don't really have much contact with each other and there's a high degree of co of uh, competition, you probably don't really have a family environment on that sales team. Uh, so there's 
what a lot of organizations discover is there's the culture that they aspire to, the culture that they claim they have, and then there's what goes on every day, which can often be very different. And so in the book, we try to talk about, Mark, about, about uh, understanding and seeing the way it really is and saying, this is what we've got. And then then saying, is this what we want or not? And chances are some of it is what we want and some of it isn't. And so then Wayne used the word aspirational culture. Like what's what's the, what do we aspire to in terms of how it feels, uh, how we do interact, all of those things. And so what we try to do in the book is help people think about not only what you've got, but what you want and how to bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. And of course, at this exact moment in time, people are struggling with this because there's this, we all have to be back in the office, otherwise we'll lose our culture. Or, you know, you can only really build a culture when people are in the office together. And we're saying maybe that's not exactly true, but whatever you do, you have to do it intentionally and understand what it is that creates that culture that you think you want. But how do you possibly create culture if people aren't seeing each other day to day and just hanging out? Like I'm working at um, Vin University and we get together and go out for lunch. We have tea uh, like every day at three or four o'clock. And not all the departments do that. Some of the departments, nobody gets together and they just do their work and go their own way. But uh, and and we were always complimented for our strong culture in the business school that had not really existed before. But there's a couple people who work there that bring everybody together. If everybody is dispersed, how do you actually make that happen? And I I do ask this later that uh, I have a, a client of mine that runs an HR company with over 80 people and he runs it out of his bedroom and it's been successful for 25 years and the folks never get together and they're all on site doing consulting work at different companies. Well, that's much closer to us. Um, We uh, went about two uh, over two years without all being in the same place uh, at all. Um, We, uh, the team is, the team is, is dispersed significantly uh, across the United States in multiple states. And there's only at this moment in time, one person that comes to this office where I'm at right now, uh, she comes a couple of days a week. So uh, we are spread across the country and that's how we operate. And I would absolutely say we have culture because um, here's what I will say. I'll start here, Mark, that anytime you have people that interact in any way, there become norms, there become ways we do it, right? And so you have culture. Like by definition, when you bring people together in any way, it's going to happen. Now, the real question becomes, how do we create the one that, again, that we want, or how do we build, as you said, Mark, a stronger culture? So specifically as it relates to what are the specific things we can do to help people interact more, do more than just transact the business and all those sorts of things. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of tactics that we can employ. We can share a couple of them with you. And so one of them is that in our team, we use Slack. Many of you might use Microsoft Teams or some other tool to do sort of uh, instant messaging kind of communication. You usually have some sort of channel or, or, or whatever for various projects or whatever. One of ours is called 
literally called water cooler. And so the things that are in the water cooler are the things that people would bring up if they were walking and chatting in the hallways, et cetera. So things show up there about the fact that someone's getting a snowstorm and what's going on there. I'm just opening it right now to see what might be in there at this very moment. Um, uh, yesterday, I posted that it was National Milk Day, just because sometimes you want to put something in there, right? The day before someone posted something about a dad joke. Like, these are the kind of things that bring us together that are the, that can kind of make up in part for that serendipitous conversation in the hallway, right? Um, go ahead. The way Wayne. I look at it, Kevin, is, and, and we're, admittedly, we're a small company, but we're a pretty good example of that. Uh, Kevin and I have built an entire business around remote. We've written three books. And even before I moved to the West Coast, we never saw each other more than three or four times a year. Uh, matter of fact, two of the three books were written when we physically didn't see each other for almost two and a half years. It works. Um, and and just we just had a changeover in our sales team. And the woman who left told us point blank she had never worked in a place that had such a strong culture that she felt such a part of, even though she spent her entire career working in offices with people. And so it she was only with the entire team once in two plus years she was here. So and, and uh, I'll give you another right? example, Mark, of and, something that left. we do. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. I, I, but she left recently? She did. Yep. And, and there were personal reasons. Oh, yeah, unrelated to that. <laughs> unrelated to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, let me give I you have... another yeah, concrete example, ahead. if you don't mind, uh, of something that we do. Uh, we we are we are about to onboard someone, and then we will be onboarding another salesperson after that. But we're about ready to onboard someone. We're going to start next week, and this has been our or my strategy for many many years because we've been largely remote, distributed at distance for many years. Uh, one of the strategies that I employ is when someone joins the team, they're going to have and and to give you context, our team is currently fourteen people. Um, when this person that joins us next week, one of the first things I'm going to say to her is that uh, in the first two weeks that you're here, it's my expectation that you have a conversation with everybody else on the team and you're not going to talk about work. In other words, I want everyone to get to know Jill and for Jill to start to get to know everyone in the kinds of ways that they might do or might happen in the office somewhat automatically. Although I'm convinced now that if I led a team that was entirely in the office, I would still do the same thing, right? Except that they would be across a desk instead of a, on a Zoom call. So, so she will have a conversation with every other person on the team with the sole intent of getting to know that person so that there's a baseline of connection, there's a baseline of interaction. And it also, I think, sends a very clear message that that's important to us as a culture, as a team, that being a part of that greater thing is a part of the work. I think that's an important piece as well. Uh, there's a question from the audience. Is the water cooler opt-in or do you automatically subscribe everyone for it? I will actually take that. Hi, Alan. How are you? Uh, <laughs> um, everybody is on the water cooler. It's one of those channels that everybody has. 
But participation is optional. Some people participate every day and are very active. Others very seldom participate. But you know what? That's what happens in the office. Uh, hey, there's cake in the break room. Some people love cake in the break room and singing happy birthday. Others have to be dragged, kicking and screaming and would do, you know, rather poke their eyes out with a stick than go through another birthday lunch in the break room when they could be getting their work done. So the water, our water cooler is extremely active and it's usually really fun. There's a lot of really strong personalities and a lot of chop busting that goes on on our team. Um, but there are people we hear from every day and others that seldom participate, and that's fine. And I think it's also important, since we're sort of talking about that media for a second, that we also have a channel called General. And the intention is, and sometimes people end up posting something in the wrong one in, in, inadvertently, but the intention is that the General Channel is stuff that everyone in the organization needs to hear about, and it's related to the business, related to the work. So when I announce that this new person is joining and here you'll get more later, but here's where that is. But in the water cooler, it's the non-work, right? And, and that's the way we try to keep it because both are important to us. And we want the ongoing dialogue to be able to happen on both of those things. But it's easier and better if they're separate. Uh, why did you guys write in the book, um, you write leadership first. Location second. What do you mean by that? So, um, it, when we wrote the long distance leader, and of course we met, we mirror that and talk about it in the long distance team. But when we wrote that, uh, we we continued to talk about the fact that you know not everything about leadership is changing just because your people are dispersed, right? The the what's of of leading are still the same. We still have to accomplish the same things. We're still trying to reach valuable outcomes with and through other people. That doesn't change. But the distance or the location creates nuances that we need to take into account, right? So we encourage people to think leadership first. Don't forget what you already knew. Apply the principles that we know work and then, and yet recognize that in a distance situation, that at, at, at distance, we need to take into account some nuances and make intentional choices about those things. That, that's think, the intent. Go ahead, Wayne. I think one of the things, I'm a history geek, as are I know a lot of CEOs and people who would listen to this. And, you know, my kind of offhand line is Genghis Khan ruled half the world and never held a WebEx meeting. We've always had remote work and teams, you know, even uh, in hunter-gatherer societies, there are individual families and larger tribal units, and this worked for a long time. What I think is important, particularly when we talk about culture, is you look at somebody like Genghis Khan, whose uh, empire lasted, you know, hundreds of years, or Alexander the Great, who the minute he died, the empire fell apart. One had a strong culture that could survive. The other was held together by a cult of personality and threats of violence. Um, so we've always had people who are great leaders, people who uh, can inspire and create a vision and a purpose that people buy into are always going to be successful. Even when remote work started, 
a lot of people with no experience in remote work, if they did the right leadership things, if you coach your people, if you create a vision, if you uh, manage performance, even if you don't know what you're doing, quote unquote, remotely, you'll probably be far more successful than somebody who is not a very good leader, but has all the technical tools. Yeah, you guys write, what's the difference between macro and micro cultures that you write about in the book? So this one's yours, Kev. Okay. So, uh, you know, when you think about a company, an organization, you know, uh, of any size, uh, and when Wayne was talking earlier about this idea of like, we try, maybe we have some, we communicate what we, we state what our culture is. That's usually what we would call the macro culture, the culture of the organization, the culture of the corporation, if you will. But we all know that if you walk around a business or a company and you go from one department to the next, you go from one team to the next, while there's connective tissue in how we do things, everyone feels a little different. The culture in an individual team will be different than the corporate whole. So the corporate whole culture of the way we do things is a macro culture. The way we do things inside of a team is what we would call a micro culture. And so you can think about that in terms of uh, a, a metaphor that we often use is one of weather. So if you have if you have mountains around you like Wayne does, or if you have Lake Michigan around you like where I grew up, uh, while the overall culture of Las Vegas isn't all is similar and about the same, where you are in relationship to the mountains and such is going to create a microculture in that area, more windy or whatever. And so they're not completely different. But yet they're not exactly the same. It's okay if your microculture of your team is not exactly the same from one to the next. But if they feel like one's in Nevada and one is in Siberia, then we've got a different kind of a challenge, right? Well, I, and I would say, Mark, you said something earlier that describes it perfectly. It's an excellent You're point. Go ahead. Vin University, but the business school spends more time socially, they do certain things that the other departments don't do. So the macro culture is, you know, this is how things are at Vin University. The micro culture is, you know, in the business school, we do this or we act together this way. That's macro and micro. That's a great example. Yep. What's the profile of a good team leader? Because leading a team and being a leader can be have different skills. For example, uh, people who work with Steve Jobs would say he's a visionary leader, but not a good team leader, hence his reliance on Steve Wozniak and Tim Cook. And there are other leaders like that. So what's your definition of a good team leader? You want to go first, Wayne? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I have a, def a definition of a team leader is someone who successfully encourages and succeeds in getting people to achieve stuff together. I mean, that's what a team leader is. Some people are extremely detail-oriented. Kevin is far more detail-oriented. I am a much better second-in-command than the leader of a company. I need I need a remora. You ever watch shark documentaries and there's these little fish that yeah. swim around the shark and clean up the yeah. mess? I need a remora. I, I don't clean up my own mess well. Doesn't mean I 
can't inspire people, doesn't mean I can't lead teams, doesn't mean I can't do that stuff. But my team is going to look different because I need somebody who is capable of cleaning up after me. Some leaders don't. Uh, to answer your question uh, directly, Mark, to me, there's not a difference between a team leader and a leader. A leader is someone that people choose to follow, uh, period, in my opinion. Uh, uh, le leadership is not a position. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's a, it's a set of actions. And if people choose to follow you, you are leading whether you have a position or whether you don't. Now, the context is different for someone who's like the you know, the corporate leader, the CEO versus a team leader. But ultimately, I said this earlier, leadership is about reaching valuable outcomes with and through others, which is just another way of saying what Wayne said, like getting the right stuff done together. And, and as a leader, we can't do it all ourselves. We're relying on others uh, to do that. And, and leadership is a, is an act or a set of acts of influence to help make things happen. And some leaders bring different strengths. Some leaders have different styles and all of that's fine because there's more than one effective way to get uh, to, to have people choose to follow you. Uh, you asked this in the book, what kind of team do you want to be a part of? What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, Mark, you've read the book since we have. Let's just say that. Um, when you start <laughs> giving us a book report, that it gets harder. Uh, <laughs> do you want to take? I don't. I don't. I, so what I'm saying is, I don't remember the context about that directly. So, well, you want to I, go I first on this one. We know that there are different types of teams. For example, a lot of our clients are uh, sales organizations. Sales organizations, by definition, operate differently than people in the marketing department. Um, or offer work differently than people who work in the lab solving problems. You decide, do we want a team that's fun? Do we want a team that is highly competitive with each other? And that's okay, right? Not in a destructive way, but we egg each other on and we, we uh, you know, we want to do our best for competitive reasons, do we want a place where the important thing is harmony? One of the things, and Patrick Lencioni talks about this in Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a lot of times people take great pride in the fact that we don't raise our voices in meetings and we really uh, strive for collaboration and cooperation and, and people being nice to each other. But you don't always get great results that way because it can have a dark side to that right people don't raise issues people cover their butts whatever so you can decide you know what it's okay to get mad and argue with each other and uh and be competitive with each other because that gets us the results you want or you can say you know we tend to damp down really strong arguments because we want this to be a nice place to work. They're both valid decisions, but they're different. Yeah. And so I think that we can take the question two ways. One is, as it as any individual, we can say, what kind of team do I want to be on? Like, what kind of working environment do I want to be in? And I think that's a question, a worthy question for any of us to ask. 
I, I believe in the book we were asking that more more of like creating that place of what's the aspiration that we want. And Wayne's giving you some examples of that, right? So from a from a team or organizational perspective, a leadership perspective, like what 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 is it that we're looking for? In terms of the way in which we do work, in terms of what we want the team to look like, in terms of what the we want the interactions to look like. But I think it's also worthy of us asking that question for ourselves uh, to say, is this a fit for me? Or if I'm looking, what am I looking for? The jokes about middle management, as you write in the book, are plentiful, but you write that they are important. Uh, explain why. Well, this has got to be Wayne. He used to have a podcast called The Cranky Middle Manager. So, Wayne, go. Yeah, I, I I think middle management gets a really bad rap. Yes, there is bureaucracy, and yes, there are people who solely exist because there's an opening on the org chart. But I also believe that they get a bad rap. My personal passion is middle management. As somebody who came from a not very advantaged background, Middle management was an aspiration. I mean, if you could start in my family and end with a good desk job that paid you well, that was a win, <laughs> right? And let's face it, no strong organization of any size can survive without at least some levels of reporting. And each of those levels is equally important. If you reach a level where the Peter Principle has taken over and you've got a bunch of people who were promoted because it was their turn and they're not getting the job done, you're going to feel those results. And the managers, remember, people don't quit jobs, they quit managers. If you have retention problems, if you have morale and engagement problems, odds are that's not the CEO's direct doing. That's probably the managers in the middle. Or or at the front and or at the front line, right? So like like oftentimes leaders will come to us, whether they're of remote teams, distance teams or not, and they'll ask, so like my why how do I deal with the negativity on my team? To which I always ask some questions, but what I really want to ask first is, have you looked in the mirror, right? Like, because what you're doing is either creating or supporting or encouraging whatever you're seeing around you, right? So using that as an example. Uh, in the organizations I ran, any potential candidate had to interview with everyone, uh, administration, marketing, sales, everyone in the organization, and they would work with any one person could eliminate a candidate. That's how I did it. And I did this to make sure that the person had buy-in and didn't feel the need to try to fit in. Because often when people join an organization, they're you know, they're new and they want to try to fit in and it gets, and sometimes it could be uncomfortable. What do you recommend when looking at potential hires to see if there'll be a cultural fit? How do you guys do that? Well, I'll take it because, you know, Kevin hired me. Uh <laughs> I it, he is very good as he should be about including various people in the interview process. You know, he does a first cut, uh maybe a couple of first cuts and then he'll reach out to several of us and say, "Hey, would you talk to this person?" And we might be peers on the same team, it might be somebody or it might be somebody else, but he gets a pretty good cross-section. And we know because we're such a small organization, we know each other pretty well. 
And hiring for cultural fit is always a tricky thing because people will tell you anything you want to hear if they are looking for a job. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, the, so the interviews, I think, are extremely helpful. And interviewing, you know, you might never work with Erica in graphics or Lisa in accounts payable, or at least not work with them very often, but they know what works in this organization and what doesn't. And they kind of are going to hear maybe different red flags than others. So I think, and that's really important is that, I know this is a dirty word these days, but that diversity of viewpoint on bringing people into the team is important because it allows you to not be blinded by, you know, oh, this is the way we are here, right? So we're going to hire type A salespeople because they're the only people that are going to make it here. That may not be true. Yeah. So let me add to that. And that is that I think that it culture is the way we do things around here, but there's other parts to culture like values, right? And, and like sort of perspective, although not 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 about diversity of thought like Wayne's talking about. So like when I'm interviewing, I'm asking questions that to help me understand sort of like what matters to those folks, like what's important to them, what drives them at work. I'm not looking to make sure that I have everybody in the same disc profile so that they'll quote fit. And I'm also not looking to find the person that's the right personality for this particular job. I'm looking, and in fact, I'm not even always, First of all, looking for skills. I'm looking for people that I think are going to supplement, complement, and connect with our organization. And that means fit without cookie cutter, if you will. So there's my take. But but Mark, to your original question in relationship to having uh, across at a minimum a cross section or having lots of people interview people i think as Wayne's already said i think that's a really important piece because people are going to get a different feeling people are going to get different perspectives they're going to hear different things like in our case because my name's on the door and as wayne often says well kevin writes the paychecks what people might say to me in an interview might be quite different than what they might say to somebody else and so hearing that and that doesn't mean that necessarily that people are disingenuous it just means that they're going to say different things. They're going to get different take from different people. And, and we want to hear, like, sounds like you did too, Mark. I want to hear from all of those perspectives about how they feel about that particular person. Yeah, I, I found when I did it this way, and for five years, we only had one person that we asked to leave. And we had right. about 25 people. And that was it, um, because once they got through the gauntlet of, uh, from the receptionist all the way through, um they felt comfortable walking in like they had already developed friendships with the people before they even exactly. arrived uh, because of this process um what's are there industries and professions that fare better remotely than others i don't know that it's industries and professions as much as nature of work Right. There's obviously some work. If you work in a warehouse, if you work in a factory, if you work in a restaurant, pretty hard for that work to be done. You, you know, that's that that's all that stuff that we talked about, about, you know, uh, critical work uh, during the pandemic. Like there's that. But beyond that, I think it's much less about a, a particular industry and much more about the nature of the work of that group. And in fact, we talk a lot about that in the book. 
uh, and 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 as as people have continued to wring their hands uh, and talk about we need to bring everybody back or it's okay to leave everybody working remotely or whatever, we think the most important first question is what's the nature of the work and how uh, does proximity serve us or not? So uh, that would be my answer, Wayne. What do you, would, would you add to that? Well, I think first of all, we learned during the pandemic that the jobs that were naturals for remote work. There are a lot of jobs that could be done remotely that people didn't think could be. Um, and so the scope of the possibility is much broader than ever before. I think, to Kevin's point, it's what is the work, right? One of the things we're hearing with return to the office is I can't get any work done. There's people there around. Too many meetings. People's birthdays and there's too many meetings. But we want them in the office because it builds culture. Well, what it builds is people annoyed with each other. If you come into, you know, if you fight a commute every day, come in, hang your coat over your chair, sit over your keyboard all day trying to get quiet work done, leave at the end of the day, take your coat and go. Why can't that be done remotely? What is being in the office doing for either you or you're doing for the team by being there. Um, What's the best way to run these remote meetings where people feel really engaged? Because oftentimes you can see people are basically looking at ESPN and CNN and um, and cat pictures, right? Uh, so well, the only reason they're not engaged? doing that in in-person meetings is because yeah, they get they caught. Do. Right. I firm I've been writing about business. I've been writing about virtual meetings for 15 years. And one of the things is it's not just virtual meetings, it's meetings. If you give people a purpose for the meeting, a reason for being there, uh, you they understand what they're supposed to bring to the table and they're held accountable for bringing that to the table. And you don't intentionally make their life miserable, they will participate. Now, there are things in virtual meetings, it's much easier to, uh, to kind of hide in the background. Well, okay, that's on the leader. Are you soliciting feedback? Are you giving them a chance to participate? Not everybody's comfortable speaking up. Virtual meetings have a chat function. Use that, especially if you're working in other languages. Many people are more comfortable with their written English than their spoken English. Are you encouraging and soliciting that feedback intentionally? Are you just letting the loudmouths speak up and everybody else is hiding in the background? And and oh, by the way, as a very, sort of very practical matter, everything that Wayne just said is exactly right. I mean, as a leader, we have we're wearing two hats in most meetings. We're wearing the leader hat, which is about the content, but we're also wearing the facilitator hat, which is about the process. And some of what Wayne just said is about process. If you've got a meeting, a virtual meeting with 15 people in it, then you should be, it depends on the uh, on the desired outcomes. But if part of the desired outcome includes interaction and engagement, you certainly should be using the chat, but you should also probably be putting people in breakout rooms so they can be talking about things in smaller groups because in person as well. Um, when you put 15, 20 people together, not everyone is going to participate. But you put people in a group of three, four, five, six, and they will. And so you think about that as an example. And the other thing is, and I, maybe it goes without saying, but it needs to be said that, man, use the webcam. 
and turn off the mute. Now you can't do that if there's 30 people, the mute part. And and even the the camera on doesn't isn't as helpful than is if there's three of us or six or seven or eight or 10 of us. Um, but what what that does is not only make the, the communication richer because we can see each other and all those things. And we could go into that if you want. But the other thing it does is it holds us accountable. It's far harder to be multitasking and typing on your keyboard if you're off of mute. Also, just to, to I'm just going to point to the elephant in the room. What are the meetings you have it, you're having and why are you having them? If you're being invited to a meeting and you have no idea why you're there or why you were invited, how can you be expected to add value and participate and give a hoot and pay attention? Especially as we are in a hybrid world now where maybe people are in the office a couple of days a week and not in the office. Are we being smarter about using the time we're together for meetings and collaboration and stuff where people actually need to talk to each other? Or, you know, are they coming into the office and then they're still on endless Zoom meetings come Friday? We have to get smarter about not only where people work, but what work gets done where. And I think that's the next frontier with hybrid work is overcoming time, space, and dimension <laughs> so that we're getting the right work done in the right place at the right time. Uh, you mentioned companies that have 40-hour work week in four days. And I know a company in my own hometown uh, a paper manufacturer has done that for 50 years, and the turnover was literally uh, practically zero. Um, what's your take on that concept of the 40, you know, four days, 10 hours tens, a day, right? essentially long weekends? It's worked for firemen for years. Well, yeah, and my wife uh, is a pharmacist and worked retail pharmacy for many years. Now works in in uh, uh, you know in in remote in a remote setting, and she has a 410 schedule, and she loves it. We have clients that have a 410 schedule. I think the future of work is, is more flexible. And I think that if we go back 30 years, pretty much everyone's model of work was eight, you know, five days a week, eight hours a day. And if it, if you didn't work that way, you immediately said, well, I don't work that way. I work third shift or whatever. Uh, and I think the future is there's there's far less of a standard. And I think there's going to be what some organizations call 980, which is you work your 80 hours in nine days rather than 10. There's going to be more of this 410. There's going to be more flexible. There's going to be more people working at different times of the day, even if they're in the same time zone. And I think that is the future. And I think it's a, if at the end of the day, we're trying to get the work accomplished, then then we should we can we can really think about how to create that flexibility when you're going to say something. Again, I, I think it goes back to what is the work that needs to be done, 100%. right? If your work is filling out reports and you can get all your reports done to a high degree of quality, effectively done in three full days or five partial days, what matters is that at the end of the day, your work is done. And that's the beauty of remote and hybrid work is it gives you the flexibility. I'm a morning person. I'm useless at four in the afternoon. I do my best, most creative work. I start at six-ish in the morning. That's the way my brain works. 
if I have to wait, when I used to visit the New York office when I was gainfully employed elsewhere, it would drive me crazy. The doors didn't open until nine o'clock in the morning. The day's half gone. Yeah, you're right. And then I have to stay until five when my body clock is completely shot and I'm useless to everybody. And if your job is creative, you know, what is it that you're doing? If you need to load the trucks and the trucks need to go out at a certain time, somebody needs to be in the warehouse to load the trucks. It, it goes back to what is the work that we're doing and what is the optimum way to get that work done. And that should drive the work schedule rather than, well, it's Monday to Friday and this is what we do. Yeah, I, I um, ran another company in, in 97 when the internet was getting started. Some of the people said, hey, could we work from home? The founder didn't want them to do it, but I took over as president. And I said, anybody wants to work from home can work from home. We had about 40% of the people uh, work from home. We saw a 33% increase in productivity uh, with these people from allowing them to do that. Um, we do have a well, question. And you from find the that audience. with engagement. You know, they were like, well, if people work from home, they're not doing engage with their peers. But during the first six, nine months of the pandemic, engagement scores shot through the roof. It had nothing to do with where they were, how much they cared about the work they were doing. I, I had a policy with them that basically said, if you got the work done, great, you could work from home. But if you didn't, you had to come back in. And if you didn't want to come back in, then it, we weren't a good fit for each other. And you had to go on your right. way. Here's a question from the audience. I'm good with virtual meetings. It's the hybrid meetings that I find so difficult. Any recommendations? I'll let Wayne go first, but I want to, first of all, I, I mean, I guess I'm not he's letting let me go first, but first he's going to say something. I, 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 wanna, yeah. I just want to reinforce something he already said, which is if you work a hybrid arrangement in your organization, um, while we we absolutely believe that virtual meetings can be highly effective, there may be times when being in the same physical proximity would be better. So why not meet when you can do that? So I'll just say that. But but we're going to have hybrid meetings. So Wayne, go ahead. Well, the thing about hybrid meetings is that they almost always default to the people in the room. It's biology 101. We are visual creatures. We are hardwired for in-person communication. So somebody in the meeting says something, Bob raises his hand, I see, I go, okay, Bob. And then Ellen says something and somebody else bounces off that. And the people who are remote can't get a word in edgewise. Or by the time they do, all the cool stuff has been said, right? That becomes a facilitation issue. First of all, facilitation means to make easy. So can people see and hear what's going on, right? If you've got bad sound, if you've got one speaker box in the middle of the meeting and the people who are remote can't hear anything, that's a problem. So do you have decent sound, camera, whatever? The other thing is from a facilitation standpoint, Sometimes invite the people who are remote to speak first. Let them lead off the conversation rather than defaulting to the people in the room. It's not that difficult, but it requires being cognizant of the dynamics. And we tend to do proximity bias. The people closest to us, because 
I can see that Kevin has a question before I even answer, before I even finish talking. My first thing is, Kevin, you have a question. <laughs> now, and I, and if you're watching, you, you can see that I've crossed my fingers. And our, on our team, this is, this is our way of remembering we have something to say and making it visual so someone else knows I'm ready to get in. And hopefully I don't forget what it was, right? And and so that's that's something that's become a norm on our team, and, and and it doesn't even necessarily require a person, me or whomever, to facilitate. We see that, right? And so I did it, and I did it for the example here. Um, but you'll notice I I saw that, and exactly, and I knew he, and you know what, everybody, I knew he would, right? I knew he would, right? And so it it, it helps the speaker to say, well, maybe I can. I can close out a little sooner, especially for your more extroverted folks. But it and it helps the person who's got something not to forget it, and and it sort of helps keep the flow going. The only thing I would add to what Wayne said is that rather than saying sometimes I would start with the virtual people, I would say I almost always start with the virtual people. And the other thing I would add is, and this may sound like heresy to you, um, in our case, if we have two or three people in the office on a given day. Uh, and everyone else isn't, we don't have a hybrid meeting. We have a virtual meeting and everyone stays in their office, even though three of us might hear each other in the building because we're better off in that case to stay all virtual than to have a few of us together. It helps us avoid some and, of those things I was talking about. And technology is reaching, there are silly little things that make a huge difference. For example, they are now selling conference tables that are wider at one end than the other. That sounds silly. Why do you need that? Well, because if you've got one camera shooting the room, you can't see the people on the close end of the table. Whereas if the table is narrower, you can see everybody sitting at the table. They have what they call owl cameras, which are weird and slightly creepy, but they sit rather than hanging in the corner of the room, they sit in the center of the room and they are voice activated. So the camera goes to the person who's speaking. The remote people can actually see who's talking instead of this disembodied voice at the far end of the visual field. We're going to get smarter about this, and the meetings are going to get better if we invest and we take them seriously and we think about it. So can you guys talk about how and why you would create team agreements, and how do they work, and how do you hold people accountable? Well, the idea of a team agreement is, so we believe that a foundational success factor for any leader is to set crystal clear expectations with their folks. So people know what success looks like and what's expected of them. Uh, the idea of a team agreement is that same idea across the team. What do we mutually agree to? Not what did the leader say you're all going to do, right? So by definition, it's a it's a mutual agreement, which makes it much easier for people to be accountable because the way we encourage them to be created is such that everyone's looking at each other in the eye and say, I'll do that which means that now we have sort of the peer pressure of I've said to everybody, I'll do that. So now I better do that. And it's much easier for someone to also to reach out and say, Hey, I don't think that's what we all agreed to without sort of really picking on somebody. Right. So, so that we believe that creating them are the things that can help us reduce conflict, increase productivity 
and drive culture in the direction that we want to move toward that aspirational culture. And here's the other thing. They are, they are written, but they are not written in stone. Right. This is the, a lot of the problem with return to offices. People created policies and the reality didn't quite match up with the policy, but we have to enforce the policy. Well, no, this is why one of the great things Kevin said, but he said it after we wrote the book and I've never forgiven him for this. And he's still talking about it. When you are creating these agreements, these policies, think pilot before policy. Right. As a team, we think it's going to look like this. So let's try it. And if it's not working, if people aren't responding, if people are hiding and not participating in meetings, maybe we need to think about coming back to the office for some of that. Or we need to uh, change the way that we operate or whatever. But times change, people change, the work changes. So these team agreements should always be up for renewal and examination and not just written in stone and 10 years from now we're going to have the same agreement even though many of them might stay the same it's very different to say we're going to try it we're going to see if it works does it have the the desired uh result does does, did our intention match uh when we were thinking about this somewhat hypothetically all of that right now, in the book, you have a chapter dedicated to putting together teams with the right experience, temperament, and so forth. Do you believe in using personality tests such as a data point as a data point in figuring out who would be right for a particular group? I used to use profiles. Profiles, MBTI, Enneagram, DISC, name it. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. all out there. How do you feel about those things? Do you uh, Are they still useful in a you know, remote world? Well, so first of all, uh, full disclosure, we have a DISC assessment that we created and we sell all the time, right? So uh, while, while we are agnostic in that any of these can be useful, that happens to be the one that we use, DISCPersonalityTesting.com. Now, we we know lots of people that want to use it in ways that make us a little squeamish. That's a little bit of a slippery slope. So this isn't exactly what you asked, but it's related to your question. And that is a lot of people want to say, well, let's use it in the hiring process. Let's use it, you know, as a part of, well, oh, well, they're like this, so they're probably not the right fit. I think that's a very, very slippery slope because there's a difference between our tendencies and our skills. And so that I think is really important to consider. The other slippery slope is if we start doing that and say, well, I want to find people that are like me. Well, if you look at the team report for our team, there's almost, there's no one else on our team that's really like me. In fact, if there are four disc styles, there's only one other person on the team with the same primary style as me. In fact, our team style is almost the opposite of me. Um, now, that doesn't always make it easy for Kevin, but it makes for a better team. And so if I were going to use it, I'd be using it to make sure I'm getting diversity rather than trying to get people like me. But I think I would say to to tie on to what you said, Mark, specifically about do those work in a remote environment, I would say they're even more important. If I'm in the office every day and I know that Bob is quiet and never says anything to anybody, but makes amazing notes. And when he does say the when he does speak, the ground shakes, right? I know that from being with him. Bob is a specific work type. 
if I don't see Bob every day and I never hear from him on meetings, it might be easy for me to assume that Bob is disengaged or not paying attention or, you know, being antisocial when in fact his notes are fabulous. And when he does speak, the ground shakes. If I know that about him going in, I'm going to be less concerned about that. If I know that I have, there are people on my team, if I'm going to talk to them about a problem, I need to have the research. I need to have the numbers or I'm going to torture them. Conversely, they know if they come to me with all those numbers, my head will explode and please keep it big picture. The fact that we know each other's, in this case, disc style, is actually critical to us working together as a great team because we know the tendencies of the people we're working with. How do you guys make people feel psychologically safe? Um, that's a you know that's a, that's a popular question. It's an important question. I think psychological safety comes by leaders intentionally working to build relationships. It works. It 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 happens because trust is continually built across the team. That when trust is compromised, that remediation takes place. Uh, psychological safety is important not only uh, with the boss if you will, but across the team as well. And uh, I think that while there's a lot of stuff we're talking about in relationship to that, that if we start with what are we doing to build the trust level amongst and across the team, it's a pretty good place to start. And as a leader, we need some feedback because we might have a blind spot about how we operate in a meeting and where our intention about creating, uh, allowing people to share uh, might not be seen by the rest of the team. Um, you write about the need for collective design. Uh, what is that and what are the four pillars behind that concept? So collective design is if we're gonna create, if everyone's gonna be in the culture, then then everyone needs to have a, a say in what it's gonna look like, right? It's not something that, it's not, it's not the culture of the CEO, it's our culture is what I would say. And I'm not remembering the context of the four pillars, to be honest with you. I would think of our three pillars of the three C's we've already talked about. So I'm missing. Wayne, what have you, what have you got there? Yeah, I, I think it depends whether you're building a company from scratch or you're trying to fix the boat while it's in the water. <laughs> it, is, it is part of it. Um, but as I say, the return to office is a good time for these conversations. It's like, what is the culture that we want? And if you ask the people on your team, what is the culture that we have here? Right? Like people on our team will say, generally, we care about each other, we're fun, and we get stuff done. That's our culture. Not every culture is like that, um, but that's our culture. Well, how do we demonstrate that we like each other? How do we demonstrate that we care about each other? How do we demonstrate that we get stuff done? And we, Kevin was talking about the water cooler. We've changed Slack channels a dozen times because they say, well, this isn't working the way we thought it would, or, you know what we need? We need this. Kevin hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it, but okay, if that will help us do what we need to do, let's do it. Culture cannot be imposed. 
you can put a vision statement on the wall. You can tell everybody this is how we do it here. But we have all either worked in or been in companies that say they are one thing and the reality is quite different. If people don't have a voice, if people don't have a chance to comment and ask questions and challenge, what you get is not a vibrant culture. What you get is malicious compliance. And so it's have, a very different uh, thing. We have one minute left here. And just quickly, is AI going to play any kind of role in remote work? Or is it already playing a role uh, in some way with the you know, remote culture you're trying to build? In in short, yes. Uh, not only with the tools that are be, the AI enabled tools that are being in, you, able to be used in things like Zoom, but it, because because generative AI, large language models, are going to impact the way work is done. Of course, it will have an impact on how we do it remotely as well. But remember, artificial artificial intelligence can never completely overcome natural stupidity. So <laughs> as long as we're dealing with people. Um, it's going to play a huge role and we're still figuring out what that role will be. For sure. Hey guys, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I really uh, enjoyed the book and for everybody today has to deal with uh, remote cultures. I mean, we have a law firm in Philadelphia that went to hoteling downsized from a hundred thousand square feet to 10,000 square feet. And you're seeing this all across uh, certainly America, but around the world. So thanks for uh, providing us with this great information. Hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks, everybody. And, and thank you, Mark. Pleasure having you both. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.